Hey everybody, welcome to episode 15 of Love ADHD. I am your host, Tony Overbay, and this week I am now the lonely one as Julie Lee. I am returning the favor. She picked up all the slack for me last week and I was so grateful for that. And she did an amazing job and I really, I loved her episode. As a matter of fact, I want to talk about a couple of things from there. There was one point where she said something like, I can come on and correct her, I think. And uh, it was this concept where I was talking about how all little kids are by definition, little narcissists, bless their heart. And they are. And I love that in the context of the way that she was talking about things of even then she moved into talking about narcissism and the label that it carries and that podcast of waking up to narcissism that she was referencing has blown me away with the reception response that it's received. And I really feel like to speak to Julie's point where last week she talked about labels and how we can either take a label and then we can say, okay, that is, uh, th- that's some context. It gives me some context to work from, but it doesn't define me and it isn't something that then I can use as an excuse. Again, well, what am I going to do? I'm a narcissist. I have no empathy and I don't care about anybody else. It doesn't work that way. But on that Waking Up the Narcissism podcast, uh, over years and years, a decade plus of doing therapy, especially couples therapy, and I started recognizing that certain people really struggled with taking ownership or accountability or um, sitting with any amounts of discomfort. And then you start digging into their past and where that comes from. And then we like to throw around the word narcissism a lot. I think everybody's ex fill in the blank is a narcissist or their boss at work is or anything like that. But really, narcissistic personality disorder is such a small percentage of the population. Some believe it's three to five percent. But where I started to to really talk about that, if we can get rid of that label, like except for, again, it is a diagnosable personality disorder. And that is a a brutal thing to be in a relationship with somebody that has that diagnosis. But I started identifying that we're all emotionally immature until we grow and learn and self-confront and get the tools and start to become more emotionally mature. And so even when we get in relationships, and this is applicable, I think, in the world of ADHD, especially as we get into relationships and we are naturally codependent and we're enmeshed because we show up not really, we're, we're so afraid of that rejection or abandonment that we don't want to say the wrong thing. We aren't necessarily going to be our true authentic self because what if that other person doesn't like this version of me? And we're going to agree on a lot of things. I, I overuse this example. I need to come up with another one. But if the beautiful girl says she likes Jane Austen movies and what do I think about them and I don't really like them or I haven't really seen them, but I sure like her, then I better learn to like them. So yes, I like them. And so I'm not really even being my authentic self because that fear of rejection, that fear of abandonment. And so when we all show up that way until we don't, then that uh, rejection sensitivity and ADHD can be even more intense. And so it can feel pretty impulsive or it can feel pretty emotionally immature or even, dare I say, starting down the path of narcissistic traits and tendencies to want to do anything to make sure that this person does not leave me. I did not do that. Yeah, you, you made me do it. I didn't say that. Those kind of responses, which are in that world of sounding pretty narcissistic, pretty gaslighty, but can also be in that world of emotional immaturity. So I appreciated Julie bringing that up because that is one of the biggest concepts, I think, in my practice that I see of the difference between people that can self-confront, take ownership of something, even when it's uncomfortable, and then use that as an opportunity to grow. And if that is the path that somebody is on, then they're they're going to be okay. But if they even are not going to therapy or they're going to therapy just to say, well, yeah, but he did this or she did this or she made me do that. Or what am I supposed to do? I mean, that's what my parents did. Then you're just going there to look for validation of that. Okay, well, I guess there's nothing you can do. 
And you can see that as a therapist, a couple of different types of clients coming in. But I wanted to share this because I actually did an episode on this today on waking up to narcissism. I'm recording this on Tuesday, January 2nd, the year 2024. Happy New Year, as a matter of fact. But it's this concept around, here's your nerdy psychology lesson for today. Egocentonic versus egodystonic behavior. So egocentonic, the definition, it refers to to thoughts, behaviors, and values that are in harmony with or acceptable to the needs or, or goals of the ego. Or so it's consistent with your ideal self-image. So in really simple terms, it's if you are egocentonic, then you are operating from behaviors or feelings that align with your sense of self. So I was talking about co-parenting with emotionally immature, narcissistic co-parent. And when applying this to kids and children, especially little kids, most of their behaviors are egocentonic because they align with the immediate desires, needs, ego of the kid. Because the a little kid is inherently focused on their own experiences and their own needs. And that's where I call them little narcissists, bless their heart. Because for them, demanding attention, expressing needs without, they don't care if somebody's in the middle of telling an amazing story. If they mess their diaper up, they need it changed now. If they are hungry, they want it done now. So they are the center of their own little universe. And it is perfectly aligned with their sense of self because it, it feels right and justified. So it makes sense. It's egocentric. It goes in alignment with their version of self, their sense of self. The opposite of that is egodystonic. Now that one, these behaviors are ones that go in conflict with, or they are dissonant to the ego or inconsistent with your self-image. So these are thoughts and behaviors that a person finds uncomfortable, distressing, or inconsistent with their self-perception. Now it's easy to point this out with a kid. So a kid might exhibit egodystonic behaviors when they're forced to act in ways that do not align with their self-centered or self-focused adorable behavior. For example, share your toys. A little kid is thinking, are you kidding me? Like I just got this uh, this toy and you want me to share with that guy over there whose nose is full of boogers and, and he's probably not going to give it back. Then I'll, I'll be darned if I'm going to share my toy. So that's, you are telling them to go against their own sense of self. Kind of fascinating. And one of the areas that you see this even, which is really interesting, is when it's go tell him you're sorry. So the little kid steals your toy. You lose your mind as a kid because he stole your toy. Anybody else see that? And now you're told you go apologize because you took it away from him really aggressively. So that goes against the kid's sense of self. And that so that would be considered ego dystonic. So what's wild about this, though, is then I went on to talk about recognizing that children then are naturally ego syntonic with their self-focused behavior. That helps you understand why they act the way they do, because that makes sense to them. And then you can actually, not that you encourage them, yeah, defend your toys with all your might, but you will hopefully have a little more empathy and understanding in them just being kids, because they're just being and doing what kids be and do. So it's not out of malice or deliberate selfishness, it's just a developmental stage, which is very key. Now, Adult narcissism is, or emotional immaturity, whichever version we're talking about, then that might be egocentric when it involves self-centered behavior. So unlike kids, though, adults are supposed to have developed the capacity to understand and consider other people's needs. So persistent egocentric narcissism in adults is a problem because it disregards their their entire developmental ability or the hope that they will mature. If you look at like an emotionally immature parent or a narcissistic person, if they don't want to do it, they're not doing it. I'm, I'm not doing it. And I might want to do it now, but later in the week, I don't want to do it. And to them, they don't understand what's the big deal. 
when you maybe are in your maturation process, say, okay, but you said you were going to do it. And I'm counting on you being consistent because I made a bunch of plans around that we were going to go do it. And then the guy says, well, now I don't want to do it though. And then here comes the gaslighting. You expect me to just do, I mean, I didn't know what was going on back in Monday. It's Wednesday now for Pete's sake. I'm exhausted. Uh, Wow. I can't believe you don't even care about how I feel. Anyway, now I feel like we're doing a waking up the narcissism episode. But I just thought when she said that I do often say that kids are walking around being little narcissists, they are. But I think it does apply in the world of ADHD because when you look at the rejection sensitivity and if a parent really is pretty frustrated with the kid acting out of alignment with what the parent wants, hey, you're embarrassing me, share your toys. And the kid's saying, I don't understand. This is my developmental stage. I'm wearing a diaper for Pete's sake, but I'm supposed to understand complex negotiation skills with that little guy over there that has one eyebrow. I mean, how do I know that this kid's going to ever give anything back? Anyway, I digress. But today, actually, I really didn't mean to go that long into that story because we're going to take a little bit of a turn today. And I thought without Julie here, that sounds like I'm saying now I can finally just talk about things. But I'm not, I love Julie to death. And it's so fun having this this podcast with her and being able to bounce ideas off with each other. And the reception has been really fantastic about the podcast. But I want to just read a story today from the book ADHD 2.0, which I lightheartedly sometimes call one of now the, the books of canon in my holy scriptures, because it is such a powerful book. But there's a section that I still remember, and I listened to it first on audiobook before I read it. And and I'm going to read it directly from the book. So I just want you to know that I give all credit to Dr. Salowell and Rite. And it's a chapter four called The Healing Power of Connection. And I still remember when I heard this chapter, when I was driving around and listening to it, that I was a little bit shocked because I thought, I, I don't understand where they're going with this chapter. And you'll see why in a minute, because, well, and I think I need to go ahead and give a warning. It sounds so dramatic, but we're going to talk a little bit about sexual abuse and some of the concepts of sexual molestation. But I promise you're going to see the context where we're talking about it because it's on a chapter called The Healing Power of Connection. So I, I truly felt like I missed something when I started hearing this come out of my AirPods when I first heard this. Chapter four, The Healing Power of Connection. So in 1985, Dr. Vincent Felitti, then the chief of preventive medicine at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego, was running an obesity clinic for women and getting pretty good results. However, he kept seeing a recurring phenomenon that he couldn't explain and that was that a large number of patients who were doing well would drop out short of their goal, despite having started really successfully to lose weight. A woman who needed to lose 300 pounds would lose 100 of those pounds, but then for no apparent reason or given explanation, abruptly drop out of the program. A naturally curious man, Dr. Felitti decided to interview these women in more detail, and he needed to know what was going on. So one of the questions he asked in this deeper dive was, how old were you when you had your first sexual experience? So again, just for context, and maybe you're doing the same thing right now, I'm listening to this thinking, is this still the book ADHD 2.0? Because I'm completely lost, but stay with me here. He wanted to ask this question, how old were you when you had your first sexual experience? However, one day, tired from so many interviews, Dr. Felitti misspoke and asked one woman what he thought was a ridiculous question the minute it left his lips. He said, how much did you weigh when you had your first sexual experience? And it turned out instead to be one of the most important questions that he had ever asked. And it actually went on to make medical history. So now maybe hopefully have your attention a little bit more and you, and you may not think that this is uh, as crazy as it sounds at first. So to Folletti's surprise, the woman did not find the question ridiculous at all. And as a matter of fact, painful in the extreme to be sure, but not ridiculous. 
40 pounds. She said, I was four years old and it was with my father, she replied. And then she burst into tears. And this was only the second case of incest that Dr. Felitti had ever encountered. So he didn't expect to encounter many more, but he was intrigued by the possible connection between trauma and weight management. So he added this question to his regular interview script. And the more women he asked, the more common were reports, not only of, of incest, but an array of other kinds of sexual abuse in their histories. And it turned out that many women dropped out of Dr. Felitti's weight loss program because losing weight made them feel unbearably anxious and vulnerable. Their girth helped them to feel safe beyond a man's desire to assault them. So even though they knew that their obesity put them at risk for disease, they did not want to give up the protection that they felt it afforded them. So Felitti's accidental discovery led to a landmark study, and it's one of the largest and most important public health surveys that ever undertaken. Between 1995 and 1997, researchers interviewed some 17,000 subjects, all in the Kaiser Permanente HMO. And these were largely white, upper-middle-class, college-educated San Diegoans who had good doctors. So the findings could not be attributed to poverty or a lack of access to top-notch medical care. The researchers asked 10 probing questions about incidents of emotional or physical trauma or abuse, including witnessing something traumatic or being the victim of it. Exposure to drug or alcohol use, that is, being in the presence of an adult who abused these substances, and familial mental health, the results were startling. Two-thirds reported one experience on what has come to be called the Adverse Childhood Experience Scale, or ACEs. 20% reported three or more experiences, and 13% reported four or more. So since that initial finding, the Centers for Disease Control has continued this study, and the ACEs test has become a standard screening tool in many medical practices. And that's because, and, and I, I want you to maybe start seeing if you can guess where the pieces are going to come together here with regard to ADHD, but that's because it can predict problems in adult health, both physical and mental. So a score of four or more correlates with a 390% increase in chronic pulmonary disease, a 240% increase in liver disease, a 460% increase in depression, and a 1,220% increase in suicide attempts. Even a score of one correlates with a marked increase in adult alcoholism, depression, and divorce. So Dr. Vivek Murthy, the 19th Surgeon General of the United States and author of the book Together, The Healing Power of Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World, named another adverse condition, loneliness, the number one medical problem in the country. In a Harvard Business Review essay, he said, During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Loneliness and a weak social connection are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and even greater than that associated with obesity. Loneliness is also associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, and anxiety. And at work, loneliness reduces task performance, limits creativity, and impairs other aspects of executive function, such as reasoning and decision-making. So for our health and our work, it is imperative that we address the loneliness epidemic quickly. So why this matters so much in our story of ADHD is because, as you can probably guess, ACEs scores run much higher in families where there is ADHD. And that is either in a parent or in a child or both, because the negative side of ADHD, as the, the book talks about the bad brakes, they talk about a Ferrari engine, but with bad brakes, bicycle brakes, causes impulsive behavior often out of control. The parent is more likely to mistreat or abuse the child, and the child is more likely to provoke, alienate, or assault the parent. So it ends up being this dangerous setup on both sides of the parent 
and the child. In the book, they go on to say love heals. If there was ever any doubt, the ACEs study proves once and for all that bad stuff in childhood, abuse, neglect, violence, drug use, loneliness, poverty, chaos, begets really bad stuff in adulthood. But there is an equally clear antidote, connection, positive connection, which at its most distilled is called love, and that has an incredible healing power. The Columbia University professor and psychiatrist Kelly Harding gathered much of the research into the power of love and connection in her 2019 book, The Rabbit Effect. And I have an episode on this on the virtual couch from a couple of years ago. And this is such a fascinating thing. The Rabbit Effect, the, the title derives from a study on rabbits who were fed a high fat diet to show the effect of high cholesterol on the health of the heart. So not surprisingly, the rabbits showed large deposits of fat in their coronary arteries on autopsy. They had not been healthy. Except, if you already know the story, it's so amazing, except for one anomalous group of rabbits that showed 60% fewer fatty deposits than all the others, yet they were eating this uh, high cholesterol diet. Same diet, same strain of rabbits, same lab, same age, but this one group had a markedly lower deposits of fat in their hearts, and it was a complete mystery to their investigators. So being good scientists, they looked further for an explanation And the salient variable that ended up explaining the difference had nothing to do with diet, exercise, genetics, or any other standard reason a scientist might expect. The explanation lay in the kindness shown to those rabbits by the lab tech who managed their group. She handled the rabbits and her care affectionately. She talked to them, petted them while she fed them, and cleaned their cages. She doted on them as a loving owner dotes on favorite pets. She was no mere lab tech. She was a purveyor of love, and love ended up making the difference. So in in human beings, a famous research project known as the Grant Study, in which researchers from Harvard Medical School studied 268 Harvard College sophomores from classes of 1939 through 1944 and followed them for the rest of their lives. And that was brought to prominence by Harvard's George Valiant through his 40 years of monitoring the study. So I think that's a long enough study. Under a new lead researcher, Harvard psychiatrist Robert Waldinger, the study is still underway today, making it the longest-running longitudinal study of adult development ever done. And its main conclusion is beautifully and compellingly simple. The single most important factor in predicting health and longevity, occupational success, income, leadership ability, and general happiness comes down to one four-letter word. It's love, Valiant famously stated, full stop. So in a summary of the Grant study findings published in Triumphs of Experience, the men of the Harvard Grant study, Valiant, wrote about one of the most important lessons from that study, that in order for love to work its most sustaining magic, the individual who is loved must be able to receive the love, to metabolize it, to use Valiant's word, even if you had a loveless childhood and feel empty at the age 25, by age 75, you can feel fulfilled and content if you learned how to take love in rather than push it away. And then in the book, they talk about the very Dr. Hollowell, who is one of the authors, can personally attest to the truth of Valiant's findings because his ACEs score is eight. So given the increased risk um, for a score as low as four, an eight obviously puts him at a great risk. So he ought to be alienated from his children and depressed and alcoholic and out of work and lonely and sick and near death's door. But instead, he has enjoyed more than 33 happy years of marriage and has raised three well-adjusted and treasured children. And he is 71 healthy years old at this writing. Well, I don't know if it's maybe Rate who's writing at this point, but says, statistically speaking, Dr. Hollowell is an outlier. He's beaten extreme odds, but he knows why he beat the odds. And he knows why almost every person like him beats the odds. The unsurpassed power of positive connection. Vitamin connect, or as we like to say, the other vitamin C. 
because in his case, he had a particularly loving and magical connection with his grandmother, whom he called Grammy. Aware of his hardships and sensitive to his needs, she seemed to make it her mission to give him safe haven. So their time together was both memorable and precious. And as Dr. Hollowell put it, uh, Gammy could turn peeling a hard-boiled egg into a surgical search for a golden kingdom called Yolk. She could turn a rainy day into a festival, a croquet mallet into a queen's scepter. She could take a disappointed boy upset by unkind words from a friend and turn that boy into a barrel of laughs and two shakes of a lamb's tail, to use one of her favorite expressions. She could elevate the lowliest days to the highest of delight, and a visit to Gammy's took on an electric charge the moment that it was announced. So I think one of the most beautiful things that, that I wanted to share today is that we all want to be heard, we want to be seen, we want to be understood. And as a couples therapist, as a therapist, period, most of my day is spent by people that are trying desperately to to be heard or to be understood, but they are so almost afraid to really open up and be seen and known because when they have done that, they have been told so often that they're wrong. And and then they feel like, okay, I guess I'm doing life wrong. I'm saying the wrong thing. And let me wrap this up. I feel like I don't want to, I love when Julie does the love ADHD. So I will frame this in the, I'm going to give a a new, it's the, one of the origin stories of the what's wrong with me, which, uh, spoiler alert, nothing. But let me start it by saying, dear, already done Peter, drawing a blank, dear, let's see the letter A, dear Aloysius, let me, let me tell you about the origin story. See, this didn't work so well. But let me just end with saying this. This is one of the things that breaks my heart is that I have adult human beings that are successful in very many areas of their life, but they're still sitting across from me. And I, I know that I can do this as well. But where we think, man, I don't want to say it the wrong way and whatever it is. And the more you think about this, when a child grows up and they're even a good parent is saying, here's the right way to do something. We're so just all or nothing black or white by default. So then everything that isn't the right way is the wrong way. And even if, again, you have a great parent who wants to teach their kid and they want to help their kid and they want to make sure their kid is successful and does the, the best they can, those are still all coming from that parent's perspective, which is not a bad thing at that point. So then when a kid is just being and doing, they're just going around, just kidding it all up and they're thinking things and saying things and feeling things and laughing at things and finding certain things curious and certain things they don't want to do. They're being told, oh, you, you need to do this or no, that's not okay to do or say it like this or why did you do that? Or do you know how that impacts others? Or what was your role in that? Or not right now, champ. And then especially to the world of the person with ADHD. Over time, what it feels like to be that person is anything I say or do or express, I guess is not the right thing. It's wrong. And so instead of externalizing our emotions, because apparently the way I'm just being and doing is wrong, then I'm going to internalize those. And now I need somebody else to tell me that what I'm doing is okay or right. And now I need external validation. So I'm handing my power. I'm handing my worth, my sense of self in the hands of somebody else who they may just be acting impulsively themselves or they were saying, what do you think I should do? And they are not you, but they're saying, oh, okay, I'll take a shot at this. I think you should do this. And if you don't want to do it, then you think what's wrong with me. And if you do it, and then now you still want to get validation when that person might've just been throwing something out there just simply because they were asked. So I think my big takeaway today is that power of connection, the other vitamin C 
and that we need to feel heard and seen and understood. And it can be really difficult for somebody who has ADHD because of that rejection sensitivity. And because we are probably waking up to this concept or fact that not everybody does think the way that we do. And that doesn't mean then that we are bad because that is some of the programming that we have that we aren't doing it wrong. We're just doing it because you are the very first version of you that's ever walked the face of the earth and you were just being and doing and check that out. This is what I think. This is how I feel. And if somebody else says, I don't like it, bless their heart. That's a them issue. All right. I cannot wait to have my good friend Julie back next week. So have an amazing, wonderful week. Happy new year. And I will see you next week with my co-host on Love ADHD. Love ADHD.